Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to wrap up the week with a look at what's still unfolding in the wake of the deadly shooting at Michigan State University. We're going to talk with the professor who was teaching when the gunman entered his classroom and shot students. Zach Gorchow of Gongwar News in Lansing will catch us up on the mobilization for new gun legislation. And we'll talk with the doctor about how better gun regulations could prevent some injuries and deaths. Of course, we also want to hear from you about how you're doing. That's all next on Detroit Today, but right now the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad that you've joined us. It has only been four days since the shooting at Michigan State University, and boy, it seems like it's been a lot longer. What a hard week. What a way to find yourself in mid-February. And what a way to anticipate so many things that we know are still coming. But in the four days since this has happened, there are some things that we now know. We know that the shooter, who also shot and killed himself, felt, quote, slighted and allegedly had plans to shoot even more people at other locations. He managed to shoot eight people, wounding five and killing three, all of them students at MSU. We know that one of the injured students he shot is now in stable condition and that this was not the first time that many students on campus experienced active shooter situations. At least one of them was a graduate of Oxford High School. We know that vigils at Michigan State University and the University of Michigan have drawn many, many students to create space to mourn and grieve and to express fear and uncertainty. And we know that Wednesday, MSU students held a rally at the state capitol demanding action on gun control. So how are students and faculty dealing with this new reality the fact that Michigan State is now among many other campuses having been the site of a mass shooting. We want to know what kinds of support the students and the faculty, other members of that community need. And we want to know what's coming next. How do they heal in East Lansing? How do they get to work just down the road at the state capitol? And how do all of us make sense of this going forward? A little later in the hour, we're going to be joined by 
uh, Gangwar News uh, publisher Zach Gorchow, who is going to talk to us about the mobilization in the capital right now around the idea of better and probably stiffer gun regulation. We're also going to be joined a little later by a firearms injury expert who is going to tell us about the ways in which better gun legislation could reduce the possibility of some of these really awful injuries and the deaths that result. We also want to hear from you, our listeners, today. Call and tell us how you're feeling, how you're sorting out the feelings that you might have about what happened in East Lansing on Monday. Call and tell us how you're dealing with this. If you're a member of the MSU community, let us know where you find your place right now. How are you feeling about returning to campus? So many students have come home, so many of them home here in Metro Detroit, including my son, thinking about what it will mean to go back. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. We want to start today with a conversation with a faculty member at MSU who endured this tragedy. Michigan State University Assistant Professor Marco Diaz-Munoz was teaching while the gunman entered his classroom. Professor Diaz-Munoz, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. So I want to start with you just telling us what happened on Monday and how you reacted. Well, um, I teach um, an evening class and um, that is part of the um, humanities core requirements for my students. All MSU students have to take these humanities classes. Um, My students call them IAH, which stands for Integrated Studies in the Arts and Humanities. Mm And the uh, topic around uh, uh, this uh, class is Cuba, the forging of a unique cultural identity. Even though um, the subject is Cuba, it's, it's, it actually addresses world history, uh, history of the Americas. Uh, and, and the kids walk out learning about Western civilization uh, to the... Uh, addressing Cuba as the axis where all these things intersect. And I was in the middle of teaching that class, which uh, starts at 9 p.m., ends at 8.50. And I, I knew or had a sense that it was past, um, that I had, it was past the middle of the class. We don't have a clock in the class, so I couldn't see that, and, and I wasn't checking my phone uh, yet. But I knew it must have been after 8 o'clock. And then uh, I was um, presenting some images to my students using PowerPoint uh, of different fortresses in the Caribbean built in the 1500s um, by the Spanish Empire to protect its trade routes, taking gold from Peru and Mexico back to Europe. And I was in the middle of that when um, we all heard 
um, what seem like explosions. I am someone who has never been closed or has had the experience of hearing a gunshot near me. The closest to that is what you hear in a movie or TV. So I'm not someone who can immediately say, oh, that's a gunshot. And uh, I heard what thought, what I felt was like an explosion, like a, I don't know, a generator, an electrical you know, um, device or something in the building that had blown up. But there was one and then two and three. By then, I started getting really uh, more aware that this could possibly be something other than just an explosion in the mm-hmm. building. And then, um, my in order to visualize this, you have to kind of think in terms of the, the spatial distribution or design of my class. And you have to think in terms of a, a, a long rectangle. And in one, at one end of that rectangle, you have the screen, the blackboard, the tech card, the podium where I would be standing. And in the other back end, it's just where students sit. And they, the, 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 the classroom is um, in an old building, so the, the seats, the chairs are all um, uh, attached to the, to the floor in rows like if you would like uh, like uh, a movie theater where you have rows um, in uh, aisles in, in, in between. And so the kids have to go into one of these and, and wait. If, if they have to leave, they have to wait for others to leave before they can move out. So they were, they were, I had about 40 students that night. I have about 45 enrolled and maybe five absent. And... Uh, um, so after that, that that explosion, we were all kind of silent, and then all of a sudden this person that seems uh, surreal because the person was all covered up, masked, hat, there was no way of seeing who it was, um, and this person dressed in nothing that, it's just neutral colors, which and 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 the, the the it just looked to me or felt to me like something not human uh in the sense of of the the person not saying anything that I can recall mm. simply having this weapon I didn't know it was a weapon it, 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 because I I was like 35 feet away the back oh I forgot to mention there's an entrance to my classroom way in the back uh, some students that, in, in, in most classes, some students like to sit fr- uh, close to the professor, some sit in the back. So in the very, at the very back of the classroom, there is a door to enter. And there's also an, an additional door uh, close to me uh, at the front end of the class. So you have two, two ways of entering or leaving the class. So this uh, individual, he stepped in in the very back. Then... Uh, uh, they said, someone said a shooter, and everybody at that moment, some stood up, uh, froze, some uh, threw themselves on the floor, curled up under the, the, the chairs, um, and I was standing in the middle at the front end of the class uh, with my the blackboard behind me, and then this guy started shooting and shooting and shooting. Mm. Um, and the, the, the shots were horrible to me because 
I'm accustomed to hearing what you hear in TV, but this was like explosion. This was something powerful. Mm-hmm. And he would not stop. It was, I don't know, it was like an eternity to me because I knew he was hitting my students. Um, he was shooting more towards the, the people that were closest to him at the far back end of the class. But like I said, some kids were curled up in, 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 under the seats. Some were frozen um, and attempting to leave the rows of, uh, of seats. Um, some were running towards me. Um, at some point, he stopped. Um, I don't. I cannot tell you because at, at that moment, you don't know. You, mm-hmm. you don't get a sense of time. Mm-hmm. It seems like an eternity. But it must have been between one and two minutes. Then he turned and left the room. And the only thing I could think of at that moment was to throw myself at the other door, which is closest to me, the front door, mm-hmm. to shut it, to close it, because he could have just stepped out and walked down the hall to towards my door, the other door, to enter it, or he could just past my class and continue on down the hall looking for more classes. No one knew. All I knew was to throw myself and I grabbed the knob and then I squatted and used my own weight to um, keep that door closed. And then I put my feet against the door frame um, Mm -hmm. to have some leverage there Mm -hmm. because anybody stronger than me could open it. But with my feet against the frame and holding the knob and using my weight, maybe there was a chance that he couldn't open it. All along knowing that all it would take probably is shooting the the um, the doorknob and, and, and then open the classroom. But I had no other, there was nothing under my power to do except holding that door. Right. And then um, as as that was happening... Uh, and students were like not knowing what to do, and I think in some ways they were probably like like myself, not knowing what to do. Uh, I told them, it occurred to me to tell them, break the windows, escape through the windows. So some of them started uh, kicking the windows, mm-hmm. and the the windows on the on the uh, the the the, 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 the uh, classroom or rectangle that I explained to you runs north-south. And so does obviously the hallway where he entered from Grand River, the main mm-hmm. um, business uh, uh, street in, in, in downtown uh, East Lansing. So he entered from Grand River and then he started walking along the hallway that runs north-south. And there's another one that intersects it that runs um, uh, east-west. Uh, he didn't make it to the to where the halls uh, intersect, um, and and that's because my wife was waiting for me outside mm-hmm. the hall for because we lost a car, so we're down to a car. So she drove me to campus. Was reading a book on one of the benches in the hallway, waiting for me to finish my class, and then we would drive home. Uh, there are benches on the hallway uh, parallel to my class. Um, that he used uh, north to south. And there are benches on the other hall that intersects this one, uh, east to west. That day she happened to have been reading 
uh, in the bench that was around the corner from where he came in. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Has she been sitting in the bench on the bench across from my door? She would have been the first. She target. was the person. Yeah, right. She would have been the first target because yeah. he entered the building. Yeah, and there are like. So, so I want to. I want to talk yeah. about. I want to talk about um, returning to school. I mean, I, oh, and I know that okay. that um, f- for you that that. Uh, the idea of that is important, right? Uh, the, the students yes, there, um, but but what will that be like? How do you move? Past? I mean, what you're describing is so harrowing and so frightening. How do you go? How do you go forward with with the students in that class? With the students in any class? Uh, yes, um, I slept for two days. I took medication to knock myself out till Wednesday because I didn't want to remember those images. Um, what I saw, the scenes I saw, students in, in pools of blood, um, many wounded, some dead, some escaping through the windows, climbing up the windows. Um, those images stayed with me, so I basically drugged myself with my prescription medication to force myself to sleep. And then yesterday, I believe Wednesday afternoon, someone knocked on the door. It was a reporter, and there was no big crew of anybody, just one person with a notepad. So I allowed her in. I felt I owed to to share the story with her. Mm-hmm. Since I, many, many people have, have knocked on my door, mm-hmm. and I've kind of moved to the a, a stage where I feel like I owe it to others to know what happened and my thoughts about what happened. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm like uh, divided. It's kind of like uh, I'm telling you the story that happened to somebody else as if it did not happen to me. Wow. Whether you call it denial or, you know, your mind dissociating itself for self-preservation. Um, so there's, there's a part of me that doesn't want to go back there ever. There's a part of me that actually feels a great need to see my students, mm-hmm. a strong need to see them alive, to confirm that they are there, the ones that survived, and to help them pick up the pieces, because I think you know when this is was it when this happens and you're a teacher uh you are their mentor and you develop a degree of um of uh, closeness or or affection um uh, because you see them as people that you're helping um you know grow uh, enlighten their minds uh, and mature so, so they are not just under, you know, I'm not just the authority figure in the classroom. I also enjoy their presence and see them learn, and I interact with them. And I, this class, with those 45 students, I always, they always sign a sign-up sheet at the beginning and a sign-up sheet before they leave, because it's two hours. Each one counts for one hour. And when they sign that last sign-up sheet, I have an opportunity. They come to the front. I interact with them a little bit. I look them into the eyes. So now you deserve a good pizza. Go and have a great weekend. 
uh, or go get yourself a burger, or, oh, you write like a doctor, that's a very sophisticated <laughs> signature. They look at me, smile, and laugh. So we have an interaction. So to me, they are like, in some ways, like my kids. Yeah. And to watch somebody mass shooting them and killing them, it was horrendous. Yeah. So there's a part of me that wants to return because I feel the same, the same way that I feel lost right now, like my points of reference kind of uh, were shattered and I need to find them again. Finding those points of reference, they are part of that. Yeah. Going back and see them and see what we make of the rest of the semester and have a positive ending, uh, I think that I owe them to them and, and I feel I owe it. I, I feel I, I have a strong need to feel that way, that yeah. I reconnect with them. Yeah. And therefore, I'm willing to go back to campus. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I commend you, obviously, for the really uh, deep thinking that you're doing about this and, and, you know, leaning into the emotional side of this. Uh, I, I know that there are many people doing the same kind of things in the MSU community, thinking about, the value of uh, the community that uh, that exists there and the importance of of rebuilding it. But I, but I really appreciate you being here to talk about you know from a professor's uh, perspective what that is going to look and feel like. I really I really appreciate you being here uh, on Detroit today, and we wish you all the best of luck uh, in the future. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. When we come back, we are going to continue talking about Monday's shooting at Michigan State University. Zach Gorchow, who's the publisher and executive editor of Gongwer News in Lansing, is going to join. He's been writing about the sudden mobilization in the state capitol just a few miles from Michigan State University uh, around the idea of enhanced, better, maybe tighter gun regulation. We'll also get going with you on the phones and on social. Scott in Westland uh, Mahal in West Bloomfield. We'll start with you if you want to join them. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. On 101.9 WDEP, Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. We've been talking about the shooting at the MSU in a number of different capacities. Right now, we want to turn to some of the political consequences. Zach Gorchow is the publisher and executive editor of Gongwer News Service in Lansing, and he's been writing about the politics swirling around gun legislation in the state. A recent blog entry he wrote is titled, A New Urgency Takes Hold on Legislation to Address Gun Violence. Zach Gorchow, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So uh, what, are, what are some of the, the laws that 
lawmakers are beginning to talk about. We've heard a lot of uh, discussion and argument in Lansing over the years about tighter gun regulations. What happened Monday seems to have given new strength to, to some of those efforts. What appears to be coming together? Well, in the uh, state Senate yesterday, uh, Democrats introduced, I guess you might say, three bills on three topics. Uh, one is uh, mandatory background checks. Uh, of course, you know, there, are some, there are federal background checks at some types of sales, but, but not all sales are covered with background checks. Another bill would make it a misdemeanor to fail to safely store or secure your firearm. Uh, and then I think the one that's probably going to get uh, maybe the most attention is what's called the Extreme Risk Order Protection Act, otherwise known as a red flag law, which would allow someone to petition a judge to have another individual's uh, firearms seized if they could demonstrate that they were a danger to themselves or others. Uh, that's, I, that, that's what's been introduced so far. Uh, that is what uh, Democrats have said they intend to do. There's, of course, a, a, a wide array of potential firearms regulations that go well beyond what they have focused on so far. Uh, but that is what uh, was introduced in the Senate yesterday and what Governor Whitmer has been talking about. So uh, would any of these laws, I think this is the question that pops into people's minds almost immediately, would they have been able to prevent what happened uh, at MSU on on Monday, are they talking about things that are aimed specifically at the enforcement and the I guess some of the loopholes uh, that allowed this person uh, to be in possession of the gun that he used? Uh, well, the two of them would not have the the safe safe storage would have not had any effect whatsoever. That that's really that's really designed to prevent a child from accessing their parents' gun. And we're mm-hmm. talking, the shooter was a 43-year-old man, so that's not going to have any impact on this. Uh, the firearms were legally purchased, though unregistered, so I, I don't believe a background check would have found anything uh, that would have prevented him from acquiring a firearm. The one that might have, and I emphasize might have, uh, made a difference would have been the red flag law. Just knowing that from the interviews, his father and this man lived with his father uh, on the north side of Lansing has given to other media outlets. Um, the father was concerned that his son had a firearm in the house. He had told his son. He says he had told his son to get rid of it. Uh, so he says his son had lied to him that he had gotten rid of it. Um, we we don't know, but you know there there is the possibility that had the father. Uh, had this tool, maybe, I emphasize maybe, he would have gone to court uh, to, to ask law enforcement to remove the firearm from the premises. Um, of course, we, you know, if this man uh, was determined enough to kill and inflict harm, uh, it's entirely possible he would have found another way mm-hmm. to acquire a firearm than the ones he had legally. But that's that's the one that potentially might have had an impact. Mm-hmm. So, so what are lawmakers saying about uh, you know the likelihood of of these laws passing? Democrats do have majorities in both houses. They are slim majorities, but they are majorities. Uh, but you also have, uh, of course, Republican caucuses in in both houses, and they will have something to say about this as well. What do we know already about what these reactions might look like? 
Well, I, I, there's an assumption, and maybe it's a, I don't know if it's a good or a bad one, that, that the Democrats will be united on these bills. Um, you, there are not many, really any, uh, Democrats from, the, from rural areas. You know, in, in 10, 15 years ago, if you had a Democratic majority of 56, 54 in the House and 2018 in the Senate, as is the case now, you would have said they're not going to have the votes because there had been a lot of Democrats who would have been pretty resolutely in support of gun rights. I don't know that those Democrats exist in the legislature right now. I guess we're going to find out. But there's nobody, as you look down the roster on paper, who seems like they're going to be an obstacle to the legislation. As for the Republicans, we'll see. I mean, they have resisted, when they were in the majority, really any new firearms regulations. Mm-hmm. For as long as I can remember, um, so you know I, I don't see a lot of votes over there. there. You know there might be, you know who knows if you put background checks up on the voting board, I, I could see you know a few Republicans who are in suburban areas and uh, have more of a center right profile might come on board. But you know just knowing how Republicans in Congress and in the legislature have conducted themselves historically when it comes to firearms, I, I, I don't think I would put a lot of money on, on many Republican votes hmm. for the legislation, but we'll find out. Yeah. We'll find out. So, so I, 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 also, um, I also wonder, um, uh, politically, how much power this incident will have, what, what kind of legs, I guess. It will have. Are you detecting that uh, that there is a different way of thinking about these things because of what happened? I mean, tragedy always does motivate people uh, in the short term, but but does this fundamentally, I guess, change the parameters for the conversation about about gun control in Lansing, or is that something we're still waiting waiting to see? I mean, I guess I would go back to to Oxford. Um, the mm-hmm. Oxford High School shooting in November mm-hmm. of 2021. Now, so it was you know there was a Republican majority in the legislature at the time, um, but there there was no you know there there was no action on firearms legislation as a result of that. Um, there was the convening of a task force of legislators, a bipartisan task force, uh, to look at school safety. And now we're talking K-12 school safety is different than a university campus. Sure. Um, and those, you know, the, that, but that group immediately determined we're not even going to touch firearms. We're never going to agree on it. Let's see if we can come up with some legislation we can agree on and move. And, and that group did um, produce a series of recommendations at the very end of last year, too late for legislative action, um, dealing with things like school security and emotional support and that kind of thing. And all of those bills were reintroduced sometime in the last week to 10 days. I guess it was this week, actually. It just feels like it's been longer. Um, and I, I, you know, that I, you know, could see, you know, having some pretty strong bipartisan support. So there, there certainly seems to be, in terms of more urgency to move something, would probably be that. But if you just go back to Oxford, it was, you know, nothing yeah. really happened. Nothing happened, right. So I don't know that I feel like, even though, you know, Michigan State, I think, 
you know, people are virtually everybody in the state, I think, is probably less than three degrees of separation from someone who attends or has recently attended or themselves attended MSU as opposed to Oxford, which is more of a, you know, a local community situation. Uh, I, I still, I think the, the jury is out to see on whether this really mobilizes people. I, I would point out that until yesterday, not a single bill had been introduced mm-hmm. by the Democrats in the legislature on firearms, even though they had talked quite extensively that this was going to be a priority. But when you, you know, when they announced, with everyone, everyone was anticipating what would be the first bills that they introduced. Uh, it was things like taxes and repealing the state's abortion ban, uh, changing third grade reading, and a whole series of other things. Firearms were not among those bills. Right. So I think. You know, it was interesting to me that they, you know, rushed introduction in the Senate yesterday because I, I don't think it looked really very good that they hadn't, they didn't even have a bill that they could even think about acting on yet until yesterday. Yeah. I'm talking with Zach Gorchow. He is the publisher and executive editor of the Gong War News Service in Lansing. Uh, we're talking about uh, the apparent mobilization of uh, at least Democrats in the legislature to try to address some uh, tighter gun regulations in the wake of the MSU shooting on Monday. I want to hear from you guys on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today with David in St. Clair Shores. David, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Hey. Uh, just a quick quick comment, I suppose, a couple quick comments. Um, you know, I, I just I want to urge or, or remind Democrats and independents that are uh, sort of chomping at the bit in the wake of this. You know, uh, and I hear it, I even hear it in the conversation right now that obviously up until now there wasn't um, there there wasn't any bills mm-hmm. uh, on the floor. You know, this is a uh, you know it this is still politics, right? And I know that that's a bummer, and that's not a good enough answer. Particular, you know, it doesn't feel like a good enough answer, particularly in the moment, you know, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going into this, obviously, you know, Democrats felt like there was a lot of things that they had to undo from particularly the Snyder era. And I, I appreciate that. But then also as voters, OK, I didn't just send you there to repeal, you know, bad laws. Uh, we <laughs> we want progress. Right. Mm-hmm. And so these you know things, <laughs> I want things to move much faster. Uh, but, you know, even in the conversation with, uh, you know, would this have prevented that? You know, I, I just don't want, I want, I know Democrats and independents might be like, well, we need to do more. Okay. But we have, we also have to do what we can and still continue to, to move the ball towards progress rather than just have a simple two year majority to, uh, to get anything done. Right. We just, I just mentioned, I just heard talking about Oxford, nothing happened, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of talking and, Nothing happened, and so I know it's hard to to hear patience, um, particularly in the wake of this. But again, we have to we have to have a long a long game here for progress, uh, you know. And yeah. uh, and I hope we we stay the course. Lastly, you know, I heard somebody call the other day about, and I heard a little bit of conversation about schools. You know, we have a, a kid, in, uh, one of our our oldest is in pre-K and I heard the conversation about lockdown drills and, and the potential anxiety around mm-hmm. that with kids, you mm-hmm. know, I, a decision we made, my wife and I was 
we're not sending him to school on those days. Now, I know the teachers are doing a good job and they're not making it this high stress thing for the kids, you know, and he's and they're so young. But, you know, back to that, you know, back to that point, and this is from a previous day, I suppose. That's but again, I just really want to say, interesting, you know, David. Uh, so so uh, just so I'm clear, they have these lockdown drills at your child's preschool. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And, and, and again, and, I, I'm certainly not trying to make make it sound like some harrowing experience because I know the teachers, I, I believe the teachers when they tell me what they're doing and, and things like that. And I do appreciate that. But as long as I can, right, yeah. and my wife and I can, you know, we want to make the only association with school. Yeah, for be school. How about that? Place to learn, right? <laughs> right you know what right. I mean? Eventually, we're going to have to have that bigger conversation. So, I mean, I you're opting, you're opting out of it, and that's uh, look. That you're right, but but it's also a really interesting way to, um, uh, you know, it's a really interesting way to, to deal with this. And, and David, I'm really glad you called uh, and, and, and shared that. Um, I want to quickly go to Mahal in West Bloomfield. Mahal. Hey, hey. Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. So I'm a parent of a five-year-old. I'm also a social worker at a local hospital. So I see a lot of patients with trauma. Um, but Monday, I was actually at kindergarten information night, hearing a presentation on the future of our children mm. and like the hopes and dreams and leaving that feeling a sense of warmth and comfort and knowing my daughter's going to be going to kindergarten next year. And then hearing about the shooting, um, you know, it's, it scares you as a parent and it scares you as a person in general, like just to be out and having to be vigilant Mm-hmm. Is, is that our new state that we're going to have to live our lives in? So it makes me question, you know, as a social worker, how I treat my patients, but as a parent, how we protect our kids, how do we have these conversations and have teach about vigilance, but also teach about, like the professor said, he has to go back to yeah. his daily life. And, you know, the pro- professor brought up some good points and, he was talking about the stages of trauma, just kind of like the five stages of grief, sure. where you're, you start with denial, and then you eventually get to acceptance. So, um, you know, I'm just coming, I just wanted to share from like a parent perspective, but also as a clinical social worker, you know, we're, we're all processing it in different ways sure. in our different roles. Mahal, I'm really glad that you, you called and, and shared that as as well. Uh, Zach, before we have to, to let you go, so these are the constituents that that are represented by the folks in Lansing. I mean, the, the, the urgency, the anxiety that you hear in their voices, again, should change the politics, I think, on the floor and uh, in the conference rooms. What do you what do you make of, I guess, the prospect for that here? I expect there is going to be there are going to be bills sent to the governor. I I just don't know how the new Democratic majority, which has been clamoring and urging uh, new firearms regulations for years and years and years, doesn't rush something to the governor's desk. And by rush, I don't mean in like one or two days, sure. but in the in the coming weeks uh, to the governor's desk, uh, I, I think they would have a full scale. Um, uh, crisis in, um, among their own party on their hands if they did not, if they were incapable 
of acting on something of, of high priority in the Democratic Party. Um, so I, I, I have to think it's going to happen. I, I don't know how many Republicans will end up, if any, supporting these measures. There could be some. Um, but I think, too, the other thing is that will, that's going to be asked is that the Democrats might do these three bills and packages of bills I mentioned. Um, but there's a lot of other issues out there that sure. involve these kinds of things. Uh, you know, should people convicted of misdemeanor gun crimes be allowed to purchase a gun? That was a problem here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was absolutely a problem here. And right now that's not, you know, that hasn't been part of the early discussion, although Attorney General Nessel has raised that point. Um, there are a whole series of, of firearms regulations that I think, is, I would guess, Democrats are going to take a look at. I, or at least some members of their party are going to be saying, you need to take a look at this. You know, one of the groups out there is saying, what about a waiting period sure. for purchasing a firearm? Um, you know, that 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 should be put into that that should be put into state statute as part of this initial wave um, of bills. So you know I know there is something of that now, and when it comes to you know federally licensed firearms dealers, but you know when it comes you know how do you deal with the private sales yep. and that sort of thing? Those these are all going to be things that are looked at, and um, it'll be interesting to see if the Democrats do pass and Whitmer Governor Whitmer does sign this first wave. Do they stop there, or do they? keep going or they keep going right okay zach gorchow always great to have you here on the show thanks so much for joining today thanks very much Stephen. when we come back we're going to continue talking about the msu shooting we're going to be joined by dr patrick carter an associate professor and emergency medicine and co-director of the um institute for firearm Inf- injury prevention we're going to talk to him about how gun laws might prevent the kinds of injuries and deaths that we see. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can go to Twitter and hashtag us as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you have joined us. We've talked about politics around the MSU shooting on Monday, and now we want to talk about guns and safety precautions. What kind of regulations should we have against guns? What states have the best regulations, and what would keep us most protected? but doesn't violate the Second Amendment to the Constitution. Dr. Patrick Carter is an associate professor of emergency medicine and co-director of the University of Michigan Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. Dr. Carter, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So Michigan is looking to maybe implement red flag laws, uh, mandatory background checks for all sales, and a safe storage law. Uh, What kinds of effects do you think these measures would have uh, on how safe we are and, uh, you know, how, how likely we are to see more of these kinds of uh, shootings and these terrible injuries and deaths from, from guns. Yeah, thank you for um, bringing up the point. I, I want to take a step back before we dive into some of the specific things that are under consideration and sure. say that, you know, when we think about the approach to 
firearm safety and reducing some of these types of outcomes that we're seeing across the board, not just these mass shootings uh, like this uh, horror, horrific event that happened at MSU, but also, you know, the daily toll of uh, interpersonal violence and homicides and suicides. We need to think sort of holistically about how we approach it. So policies are one tool and one uh, way to think about how to reduce these types of events, but they're not the only tool. So they have to be part of a larger approach that involves you know, how we intervene with people who are at crisis and healthcare settings and how we identify uh, events ahead of time, how we change school climate so that these type of events don't occur in, in school settings. So it, um, policies are one part of a larger solution and an important part, but not the only part. Mm. So uh, I just I always like to start off with that frame so sure. that people know that, you know, we're, we're not we shouldn't just consider those. But right. um, but there are some po powerful policy tools, and I think some that are being um, considered now, obviously, in Michigan in the wake of, of this event. Um, you know, you brought up the extreme risk protection orders and, you know, they're a relatively new, um, relatively new tool, mm -hmm. um, but they've been uh, pretty rapidly increased across um, states in the United States. And the idea with these is that, you know, um, people can um, petition uh, the legal system to temporarily restrict somebody's ability to own and operate firearms in moments of crisis where they might be a risk to either themselves or somebody else. And the idea is that this is based, you know, on directly on observed behavior, either threats that are being made to themselves or somebody else. And that through that, we can put in place this restriction that uh, has the ability to remove the firearms temporarily for a period of time when the person is in crisis to get them the help that they need and to address whatever that risk is before they have this lethal uh, firearm. Mm. And so we've seen certainly um, some promising data on that front in terms of specifically around the prevention of suicide, but there's such a new tool that we're still understanding how they're being used and, and really the impact of them. But I think um, you know experts agree sort of across the board that this is a this is a potential, um, you know, really a game changer in terms of trying to identify people who are at risk and trying to intervene before they they have, you know, significant lethal outcomes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I want to take a caller here who I think uh, has a point that uh, that I, I want you to address, uh, Dr. Carter. Uh, Frank in Detroit. Frank, go ahead. Hey, how you doing this morning? Hey, man, how are you? Um, I'm going to be brief with it. I really have a problem with the shooting because I live in Detroit. I'm a resident of Detroit, and there's so many shootings that go on, but I don't see 1,100 people turn out. Mm -hmm. I don't see politicians on every radio station saying how they can change policies. I don't see professors putting in two cents trying to figure out, hey, how can we save more lives? A life is a life, mm -hmm. period. Yeah. Frank. It doesn't make any difference. Frank, you're absolutely right. Look, I live here in the city, too. Um, and, you know, the violence that we endure here is absolutely unacceptable. And as you point out, the, the reaction to it is not the same. Uh, we have become absolutely numb to the, uh, the idea um, that, that we can do anything about it. And it's frustrating. Uh, it, it is wrong. Um, I, 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 would caution the idea of framing it as, as an either or, right? We shouldn't be resentful of the attention that that is being given to what happened in Lansing. We should be pushing for the same kind of attention here. 
Um, but but I'm really glad you called, uh, Dr. Carter. The reason I wanted to inter- interject that call is again the the, the attention here um, is episodic, right? It, it is about <laughs> yes. what happened on Monday, and I mean you're somebody who works on this all the time. We never get the momentum going to actually change the laws in a way that that would prevent these things. Well, and I think um, the caller, Frank, is is absolutely right that, you know, um, these types of mass shooting events, these school shooting events that we see, you know, if we think about the totality of this problem, you know, they're horrific events and they and they garner all of this mass media and focus. Uh, if we think about, you know, what percentage of the overall problem of firearm deaths they represent, they represent about 1% of those deaths. So, you know, it's that daily toll that, you know, your caller alluded to that we are seeing that results from interpersonal violence, that results from firearm suicides that, you know, we also have to be focused on. And it, and I agree with you 100%. It's not an either or. It's, it's, it's really we need to focus on all of these aspects of it. And it's partly why, you know, I always start with that frame of there needs to be a holistic approach. There isn't a single policy or a single program that's going to solve all of these problems. And I think we we sort of um, often get lulled into thinking we can put one policy in place and that's just going to solve this. But really what we need to do is, is push on all of these levers. What are the best violence prevention programs for, for settings where we see lo- large rates of interpersonal violence? What are the best policies? You know, what are the best ways to prevent suicides, which we know are elevated, uh, especially we see a lot of firearm suicides in, in rural communities among our older population. And how do we address that problem? It's really about a holistic approach that really takes all of those factors into into account uh, as we move forward potential solutions. Yeah, we've only got about a minute left, but and I want to apologize to the callers who are waiting. Uh, we, we, we couldn't get to everybody uh, today, but uh, we will be talking about this, I'm sure, again. So keep listening and, and call back in. But Dr. Carter, can you point to a few states that you think we could uh, learn from, people who are maybe doing this better than we are? Well, we know uh, we've seen in the data, you know, uh, around comprehensive background checks, which I know is one of the things that's under consideration here, that the most robust effects of that are when um, the background checks are paired with permit to purchase laws. And Mm -hmm. Connecticut has had been a nice example of of how that has been done and then uh, reinforced and has seen um, good um, uh, effects in terms of decreasing both uh, rates of suicides and homicides. Um, and so that's uh, one example, um, I think. The other thing is we know in states that have um, uh, child access prevention laws that are uh, specifically paired with a felony conviction, we, we definitely see reductions in, especially among young people, the rates of suicide and, and homicides. And we know that these school shooting events that we're seeing uh, that, that occur on a, like Oxford on a regular basis, you know, about 75% of those cases the shooter got the firearm from their home or the home of a relative. And so thinking about the, how these child access prevention laws can help decrease those outcomes is important. Yes. Okay. Uh, Dr. Patrick Carter, really great to have you here with us. Uh, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back on Monday when we will have more great programming here on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.